Well, good morning. We have been enjoying um, singing hymns together, and, and as we continue our series on great hymn writers of the faith today, we, we come to a man named Elisha Hoffman. And Elisha was born in 1839 in Orwigsburg, Pennsylvania. His parents were Pennsylvania Germans. His father, Francis, was a minister of the gospel and rendered over 60 years of service in preaching the word. And Elisha has a wonderful story. He gave his life to Christ as a young man. And after graduating from high school, he went to seminary. And he would later serve as a minister of the gospel. He pastored churches in Cleveland, Ohio, in uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, and in Illinois as well. And he would serve as a pastor till his death at the age of 90 in 1929. And Elisha, dear Elisha, had a passion, not just for serving and ministering in the church, but he had a love for music and a love for writing music. And he had a deep desire to write hymns about the saving grace which he'd found. And as much as he loved music, however, his musical education was limited. His contemporaries told him to leave the songwriting to the trained professionals. He wasn't a graduate of any school of music, but he was a natural musician. We're told all the musical knowledge he had was gained by personal application. Mr. Hoffman's first impressions of music, it says, came from hearing the voice of sacred song in the home. His parents both had sweet voices and sang well. It was their custom in the hour of family worship, both morning and evening, to sing one or two hymns. At an early age, the children became familiar with these hymns and learned to love them and to feel their hallowing and refining power. Their lives were marvelously influenced by this little service of song in the home. A taste for sacred music was created and developed, and song became as natural a function of the soul as breathing was a function of the body. Never underestimate the influence of what you instill into your children. Amen? Not only shapes who they become, it will shape what they do for Christ. Under the power of such an environment, Mr. Hoffman came to consciousness of a princely possession, we're told, with which God had endowed him, the ability to express his intuitions and his concepts in meter and song. He wrote his first song at the age of 18, and by the time the Lord took him home at the age of 90, he had written over 2,000 hymns, classic hymns, hymns we still sing today, hymns like, What a Wonderful Savior is Jesus, My Jesus. Enough for me, no other friend like Jesus is your all on the altar. He served as editor for 50 different songbooks and hymn, hymnals. This musically untrained man was filled with a gift not learned in this world. He left a lasting musical and spiritual legacy, and he became one of the most prolific hymn writers ever. There's not a greater lesson that God doesn't necessarily call the equipped he equips the called. Today we celebrate Elisha Hoffman and we're going to sing his hymns together. Hymns of Timeless Truth. Join us. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Sing it out. 
Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed? Are you washed? In the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed, you washed in, the blood, in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Sing it again. Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of Are your garments spotless? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And the idea for the next hymn came from Anthony Showalter, a college principal and a dear friend of Elisha Hoffman. He had a sincere love for his students. And after class one evening, he received two letters, both from former pupils. Each of the young men was heartbroken, having just lost his wife. And Professor Showalter went to the Bible, looking for a verse to comfort them. And he found Deuteronomy 33:27. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He pondered that verse, and, and he called up his good friend Elisha, telling him there must be some good hymn that could be written from Deuteronomy 33:27, And that was all the inspiration Elisha needed. He penned this classic, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. What a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a 
blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, Legend has it that Hoffman was reading about the crucifixion of Jesus in the Bible and he began to think about how God saved man from their sins by allowing Jesus to die on the cross. And what a marvelous, marvelous transaction took place. And he wrote down words to a poem and he called it Glory to His Name. And he shared the poem with his church congregation and they loved it. And later he put it to music. And it's still around and still sung today. We know it as Down at the Cross. Sing with us. Savior died Down where for cleansing From sin I cried There to my heart Was the blood applied Glory to His name Glory to His name 
to his name there to my heart was the blood applied glory to his name i am so wondrously saved from sin jesus so sweetly abides within there at the cross where he took me in Glory to His name, glory to His name, glory to His name, there to my heart was the blood of life, glory to His name, O precious fountain that saves from sin. I am so glad I have entered in There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean Glory to His name Glory to His name Glory to His name There to my heart was the blood of so rich and sweet cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet plunge into day and be made complete glory to his name sing it out glory to his name glory to his name there to my heart For his glory, glory to his name, glory to his name, then to my heart was the blood of While not working in his study or writing gospel songs and hymns, we're told Elisha could be found ministering with the poor in their homes. The story's been told that as pastor while visiting one day, he came to a home which had been experiencing much sorrow and much affliction. And he found the mother of the home in the depths of despair. He tried to quote Bible verses that he thought would help console her, but to no avail. And then he suggested that she could do nothing more, nothing better than to take all of her sorrow to the Lord Jesus. You must tell Jesus, he told her. Upon meditating on these words, a light broke across her face and she cried, yes, yes, I must tell Jesus. Mr. Hoffman left immediately with those words still ringing in his ears, I must tell Jesus. He went directly home and he wrote this hymn, which we're going to close with. And he's left this as a lasting legacy and thought. What a comforting truth. No matter what we're going through, 
No matter how difficult things may be, no matter how alone we think we are, we're not. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. And Jesus alone. Let's close with this hymn. tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He kindly will help me. He always loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. One who can help my burden to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. He all my cares and sorrows will share. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. And know how the world of evil allures me, oh how my heart is tempted to sin. I must tell tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. Sing that chorus, I must tell. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, 
Jesus can help me. Jesus, oh, sing that last line. Jesus can. Jesus can help me. Jesus. Well, good morning. Good to see you folks again. Isn't it great that we have someone we can talk to and we can tell Jesus? And we can tell him anything. What a friend we have in Jesus, huh? Father, we just want to thank you for our time so far together, just reflecting on some of these wonderful hymns and uh, wonderful truths that they tell us about you. And we just pray now that as we just look into your word, that you will encourage us and that we will leave here again having a sense of being fed from your word, we ask in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy. We're going to really just be looking at a couple of verses today, but we're going to ponder these and chew on them a bit. Discussing the subject of Encouraging one another in, in discouraging times. Um, we are the body of Christ here on earth. For those of us here in the room who, who know the Lord, we are his, his spokesperson, if you like, through the Holy Spirit. And so when others are looking at us, it's, it's awesome when there's something of Christ in the way that we speak that they can say that that sounds like that's come from, from God. That's from either directly a word that you're quoting that's right from Scripture, or it's something that rings true because it's truth, and it's a word of encouragement. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a, at a man that um, we may not know much about but we are going to read it here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 16. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day, you know very well in how 
many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Then it's interesting, the only other reference to this man's name is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and just in a passing reference and mentioning final greetings, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 19, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. And that's all we have. When you think about your favorite character in the Bible, if you want to think of maybe even in the New Testament, probably many would say Peter, outside of Christ, of course, who we read of. Peter, Apostle Paul, who has 160 references in the scriptures. Some may mention Mary. Some might mention Elizabeth. And there may be some others that come to your mind, some of the other characters in, in the Gospels, some of the disciples. But I wonder if you were to think about it before we read 2 Timothy, if you would have mentioned this guy was your favorite guy in the New Testament. This was someone that came right to your mind. It's hard enough to pronounce his name. As I understand it, it's Onesiphorus. Or it could be syphoris. I don't know. That sounds more like a disease, syphoris. So I, I kind of like, like to go. And, and I hope he'll correct me if I was wrong when I see him in heaven. Syphoris sounds more appropriate. And maybe just for these purposes, I will just call him Ani for short today. But what, it, but what his name means is it means he's a prophet bringer. And you think about that when you contrast how couple of times he's mentioned a few months back when I was here and I was talking about in, in Timothy about those who had shipwrecked their faith. We talked about a character and two guys named Hymenaeus and Alexander. And you just think of the contrast of their references in a couple of times in scripture versus this man on Sephorus. Just to get a little bit of a backdrop here, what was occurring was is after the New Testament was founded in, in Acts, as a result of Pentecost, the church began to grow. And it was growing for the next 30 years throughout Asia Minor and Europe. And Nero had become the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he began pers persecuting all those who were calling themselves Christians, in the most generic sense of, of the word. In 64 AD, Nero burned down Rome but what he did was, is he blamed it on the, the Christians. And as a result, everyone who was suspected of being a Christian back at that time was arrested. And many were martyrs and died for their faith. Now, while, while, while this was going on, Paul was in the countryside preaching Jesus. And it's quite fascinating when you just realize and read through Acts what his message was. When he was preaching Jesus, he was preaching the, the resurrected Jesus Christ, emphasizing that he had risen from the dead and he was now risen. And of course, if you know the story, he was eventually arrested and thrown into prison, Paul himself. And obviously, Paul being the leader of this movement would make him a, a high target that if you were one person that was going to go visit this guy, you'd have to think very carefully about doing that kind of thing because it was going to be incredibly dangerous. And I'm sure there were some who would say to Ani Sephoris, don't go see him. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? 
Don't go searching out for them. If anything, this is the time now to maybe some would say distance yourself from him. But he didn't do that. Second Timothy chapter 1, we see, as it says very clearly, him, uh, clearly here, what kind of character he was. Some of the things I notice when I just in passing see this is that he was a man who had courage. You get the sense, and Paul makes reference to this in different examples while he was in prison. One of the issues, and it's, it's good to see this because we remember Paul was just like us in this sense. He experienced some of the emotions that we experience, if not all the emotions, of course. And one of them was loneliness, which was just referenced in one of the songs we sang. And so Paul is in this situation, and, and there were those he thought were going to come and visit him. There were thought, those that he mentioned by name actually did just the contrary. They deserted him. But Onesiphorus did not. And the name brings up the very clear thing of what his value was. He was a prophet bearer. He brought value. Paul says very clearly in these verses, he says, he often refreshed me. And this is where we're going to be going in just a few minutes as we talk, is he refreshed him in what way? His presence. And then you think about it, well, what was going on in, his, in the presence that he had when he was with Paul? And it was obviously the very fact that he was there. But it also had to be in the things that he said, in the words that he said. Have you ever been around someone who, when you're in their company, you're refreshed? Then there's other times you may be around somebody and you say, I wonder when they're going to leave. Yeah. I wish they had never come. They bring a certain, let's just say, opposite of refreshment by their presence. This wasn't the example of this man. Paul says that he was not ashamed of my chains. That really says something, doesn't it? He says he sought me out diligently. And he found me. He was a guy that was, was dedicated, persevering, faithful, and overcomer. When I think of this man that was thinking through, what are some of the qualities, what are some of the additional character traits of him? And he was a person who sets and reaches goals. He had this goal that he wanted to be this encouragement, and he was by God's grace, he was going to make sure that he accomplished that. He was someone who went above what was required. Didn't have to go out searching for Paul, but what loyalty he showed to the apostle in that he was searching him out diligently. He was someone who was given his life and time, sharing himself with others. He was someone who visited those, obviously the apostle Paul, who was in prison. And he was ministering to him. He was humbling himself in the very act of what he would do. He wasn't afraid of menial work, of doing these kind of tasks, refreshing him. There wasn't any glory in this. This was something very much behind the scenes. And he was willing to take a risk for his beliefs. It's a pretty good, it's a pretty good summary. It's a pretty good description of the guy just in these verses of what Paul alludes us to. It's the kind of stuff I'd want to see on a job application of that kind of character in a person. 
This is what this guy was like. You know, and you look at his life and you say, you know, his life mattered, it counted. He was, he was Jesus, be, behaving like Jesus, encouraging Paul in these very circumstances. And it, it led me to the question, as how do I become an encourager? How do I grow in this? Not everyone's going to have the opportunity to be in a situation where they're uh, in a public situation where they're speaking or they're up front in some capacity, but there's this opportunity that we all have as members of the body to be an encouragement to one another and all the varieties of how we can do that. And how do we do that? Often it's not when we try and set up the situations and say, I'm going to bring somebody over so that I can encourage them. But it's in our very contact that we have with each other, whatever situation that that's in, that we can do that very thing. In other words, we've got to be alert for the opportunities. You've got to be alert. You know, not, not so much with our heads up in the, you know, in the clouds in the sense that we're just missing it, but th by looking with the eyes that Christ had when he looked at the eyes of those he, he felt compassion for, and then it caused him to do something. But he was alert for it. He was looking out for opportunities to minister to people. I had the opportunity a few weeks back, about three weeks ago, I was asked to go to a homeless shelter in Oakland and to uh, be among men who had alcohol and drug addiction issues. And it was an opportunity to, to be in a, a line to serve the, the homeless and then the men, about 30 of them who stay there just off Broadway. And then I was asked to give a little talk afterwards. It was interesting, I just had started with about five minutes into it and one man was doing this to me in the audience, basically wrap it up, you know, wrap it up. And so I had about 15 minutes, but um, that was early on to telling me to wrap it up. But what an opportunity it was to, to be alert for it. And then when I walked in, I'll be honest, I haven't been in that situation ever. And I've been a believer some 30 years. I wish personally for myself I had, because it was the, one of the most humbling experiences that I've experienced in a long time to know and to say, what do you say? What do you say to these men? What word of encouragement do you give to the man who I'm sitting with, first letter J, who had been a businessman, a manager in his mid-50s, married 20-some years, but fell into the whole sin and the whole struggle of alcoholism. Lost everything. I said, do you have a car? I don't have a car. How many days you been here? 35. It's a 365 day program. What do you say? What do you say to the, to the guy that's 23 years old? As I was talking to him, a, an accomplished, a, a very gifted young guy, had a degree in culinary skills, uh, had a business degree, got into drugs, broke out of drugs and now was in alcohol and was now here 31 days in the program. And it's in those situations you're thinking, what, what, word, what word from Scripture is going to be a comfort to these guys? Well, it's all going to get better. See you later. You know, what are you going to say? Be alert for the opportunities. 
Maybe you won't find yourself in that situation unless you place yourself there. But there's folks that are needing encouragement, whether they're, you're in your family, they're in your fellowship, they're in your job place, they're where you're in your school. There's people that need to be encouraged. Problem is we've got to get ourselves off us and our issues and be looking out at what else is going on and being alert. He took advantage of being a ministry of refreshment. And that idea of refreshment for Paul was it brings up the very idea to brace up or revive again. The Apostle Paul needed encouragement, and he got it from Onesiphorus to freshen again, to cool again. And really the idea is, is this, is that if we were uh, in some room and it was absolutely just sweltering hot, there wasn't any air conditioning, and for some reason we were all just in here frying. And then somebody just says, the bright idea, I'm going to go open up a couple of windows, and you get that breeze that comes in, that cool breeze that just kind of relieves us and revives us again. That's what refreshment means in this context, to freshen again. This guy provided refreshment to Paul from all the pressures. Can you imagine what Paul had been going through? All those pressures, the weariness, the loneliness, and even the discouragement that had set in. And he did so even despite of the fact that ridicule could have occurred. You know, when I say you got to be alert, is hurting people, those in the body, those outside the body who don't know Christ, they do send signals. They do send subtle hints. You might notice, if you're observant at all, that they will show sad and downcast expressions. Maybe there's uncharacteristic behaviors that are occurring. Maybe some of the routine tasks that they do are starting to slip. Maybe they're becoming more indecisive. So these are some of the symptoms of somebody who could be discouraged. Somebody once said of indecisiveness, I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. Indecisive. The tone of voice and how they're speaking, or even how they're dressing. I was with somebody recently that said, and they weren't boasting about it, and they weren't really just, it was kind of a matter of fact that this was a very discouraged person. They said, I haven't showered in seven days. That was a, not normal for that person when they said that. And then the issue of not only being alert, you know, just having the radar out there. Jesus had that. You know, we went out of his way sometimes just to go meet with someone that had a spiritual need, who needed to hear the gospel. But also then to be someone who's learning the art of effective listening. Someone once said, when the word got around that I had cancer, I soon discovered how to evaluate those who really cared. They were the ones who listened. Good listening takes practice, doesn't it? I imagine when Onesiphorus was with Paul, he was listening a lot to what the apostle was saying. Problem for a lot of us is that when it comes to listening, we're better talkers than we are listeners. And even when we're listening, sometimes what's going on, isn't it, is that we're already thinking in what we're going to say, so we're kind of missing what they are saying or what they're not. At my job, one of the problems that I have, and I have to really, uh, it's a struggle for me, is I, I have to interrupt and control most conversations. But when I get out of that work environment and I'm talking to somebody, I've got to focus 
and listen rather than trying to interrupt and control and say, and, and my mind is ADD all over the place and I'm just scattered. Somebody wants to, you to listen. I remember talking to a friend of mine, they say, you're, I notice when you're talking to me, your eyes are all over the place, you know? They're trying to have a conversation and I'm looking, you know, around or something and so, uh, one day I said, every time I talk with you, I'm just gonna wear sunglasses and so you won't know, you know? I'll be inside and I'll just wear sunglasses and you can't tell where the eyes are going. Effective listening. Job's friends, I've been reading this summer the book of Job, uh, part of it, and then I've been reading Daniel. And it's interesting to me that there's three friends in each situation. Job's friends, they, they, when they first saw after everything that had happened, and I've, we've had a, when somebody says, how's your summer been? Our summer's been, from a standpoint, humanly speaking, lousy. June 20th, some significant trials hit, and it frankly has just kept on going. However, as bad as some of my trials and discouragements have been with our, some of the things going on in our home, uh, not with my marriage, but with one of my kids, uh, and some other issues, it doesn't compare to Job. And so I was reading Job, and I was thinking, wow. I mean, you know, how, how do you handle this? I mean, it's one thing if it's kind of spaced out, but this was, you know, you know, the loss of his kids, the loss of his livestock, everything. Of course, Satan says, yeah, but touch him, then see what happens. And of course, you know the story from head to toe, boils. And when I saw these three guys, they, his suffering was so great that for seven days, they didn't say anything. They just kind of stood in the distance. Unfortunately, then they just started to come and start talking. And you start, you start reading the, some of the things they're saying after all those chapters, and it's crazy. You know, it's, you're, there's parts you just want to say, stop. You know, if, who needs, with friends like this, who needs enemies? Some of the things they said were good. There were some moments of some good stuff, but a lot of stuff that was just, they were way off. Because they were talking. They were talking. I wonder if Job needed to hear them listening. Then you compare that to Daniel's friends. And what an encouragement they were to him through all that he was going through in the lion's den, in the fiery furnace, right there with them. Right there with them. Didn't abandon them. And then there's the issue, of course, of emphasizing with hurt feelings. I suspect that's what Anisiphorus was doing with the Apostle Paul. And that's what I love about Jesus, was he was mimicking, he was, he was modeling, he was mentoring Jesus. Because the Jesus I read of in the Gospels is a Jesus of compassion. He's a God who feels what we're going through. And it, to the point to where even when Lazarus had died and he saw the reaction to the sisters of that, he wept. He wept. Sometimes I remember someone saying to me several years ago, they said, you know, the only way I think I'll see any kind of outward reaction of compassion on your part is if I put some cow gut here and I, well, you just pull it and get your, your lip and to start quivering, you know? Some outward expression that you're actually feeling emotion for others. Something that God has been teaching me over the years to do is to feel what someone else is going through. Is that something that you're, you're growing in? And then, of course, there's the issue of using the right words. Stories told of a pastor who was retiring after 25 years as the... Uh, main speaker in the church. And as he came uh, to his bedroom, 
He found a small bowl with five eggs and $1,000 in it. Baffled, he called his wife and said, Honey, uh, what is this little basket? He'd never, of course, seen it under the bed with five eggs and $1,000. Oh, she said, I must confess that every time you preached a bad sermon, I put an egg in the basket. And secretly, the pastor was pleased. Not bad. Five bad sermons in 25 years, he thought. But then he said, but what about the $1,000? She said, well, every time I get a dozen, I sell them. Not necessarily the right words. You think about when we're in our marriages and our relationships with each other as husbands or fathers, uh, mothers to your kids, your coworkers, again, those you maybe go to school with, your neighbors. What are the, what are the right words to say to someone who's going through an issue and you want to be an encouragement and a blessing to them. Proverbs 12.25 says, An anxious heart weighs down a man, but a kind word cheers him up. We've all experienced, haven't we, those kind of things where we're, we're going through times when we're anxious, when we're feeling that heavy-hearted, deep, trouble about something, something that we're going through, illness, death, serious disappointment, failing to achieve some goal. When you're aware of that in someone's life, to what extent are you encouraging those folks with kind words, the right words? Scripture also says, Proverbs 16:24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. When Solomon wrote this, he was saying that pleasant words, and when he thinks of them, he's comparing them to the sweetness of honey. That's powerful. I don't know about you, but who doesn't like sweet things? We do. Pleasant words are sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Proverbs 17:22: a cheerful heart is good medicine but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Maybe you've heard the story before about several students who were going to test this very idea from Scripture. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And so what they did was they decided that they were going to meet together and they were going to give their friend negative feedback regarding his mental and physical well-being. And so when the first guy sees him and he said, what's wrong, Ken? That's his, his name. And he says, what do you mean? He goes, I feel fine. He said, oh, you don't really look that great. Several minutes later, the next guy, planned operation, meets him and says, you okay? You don't seem yourself. Ken said, I feel fine, I, I think. About 15 minutes later, the third student meets Ken and says, you know, you really don't look well. And he says, yeah, I'm not feeling great at all. I think I'm getting sick. I'm going to head home. The impact of words. Three folks coming at you. 
saying those kind of things versus three words or three examples of encounters of encouragement. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. I think that that's what Onesiphorus was to the Apostle Paul. And it raises the question, Jesus did this, and with having Christ by the power of his spirit in our lives, are we healing broken spirits? I have known a number of folks who are like that, and I love to be in their company. I've also known a few who seem to make it a habit of breaking your spirit and causing a cloud of discouragement to come over by their very presence, by their very words. You wouldn't want it on your tombstone that so-and-so was a wonderful discourager, would you? You wouldn't want that. I sometimes think when I walk in the door, what are the very words going to be out of my mouth to the persons that are there to greet me? That's what's great about a dog. You can say a number of things to him or her, and you know, they come right back don't seem to really take it in. They still love you. But wounds that we can offer with our words sometimes aren't as easy, are they? Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. I mean, it doesn't get any more dramatic than that, the contrast. Death and life are in the power of of the tongue. Can you think today, just as we, as we wrap up, can you think of someone today who is spiritually confused, discouraged, uh, suffering from some fear of some sort? They're anxious, they're ill, they're under pressure, uh, they're lonely. What, what can, what will you say to that person? This summer, June 21st was summer, I believe. I think this is the official first day of summer. And that was the first day that, of summer that Cindy and I got kicked in the gut with a trial. And then uh, I read a book and I said, you know, I need to be encouraged in addition to the scriptures. So I started reading Daniel and I started reading uh, Job, which wasn't all that encouraging at times, but so I had to kind of, you know, then I picked up a book on courage, which was very encouraging. It just reminded me of the, of the power of our words. You know, you can read a paragraph from the scripture, you can read a paragraph from a godly author, and it can be such refreshment to you. It was funny, we received quite a bit of encouragement from friends, and it was just saying we're praying for you guys and, and so forth. And, One of the sentences that I read in the book was when someone, and I forget the guy's name, but it was when somebody asks you how you're doing, and you can't say this to everybody, but he said, say, I'm just where God would have me. I'm just where God would have me. And I've, and I've been, and I've, that, one word, that one sentence I've been holding on to this whole summer because whatever the circumstances I'm in, I'm just where God would have me. And so wherever you are going on right now, God has you right there. It's not a mistake. It's not that he got caught off guard by it or surprised by it, but you're just where God would have you.
And funny enough, I read that very sentence when we were up in Tahoe three weeks ago, and it was a vacation. It was going to be a really great needed break camping at Dale Bliss Park, where I think some of your folks are in Tahoe now. And I got violently ill the first day. And it lasted the entire time. And all I could do, and all I'll say was it was an intestinal bug that I've never had and never wanted to have again. And all I could do was basically sit in the shade for the whole week while they were out camping and water skiing and rafting and eating and enjoying. And I'm just there. And I'm just reading my Bible and reading this book on courage. And then I had to get blood work when I got back and so forth. And of all things, and it's, I'm three weeks into it. I've got about another three weeks to go. And believe me, I'm not contagious because I'm off the antibiotics. But of all things, I got typhoid. Now, does God have a sense of humor or what? <laughs> typhoid. How did I get typhoid? But the Lord knows I'm just right where God would have me. And so as I was receiving encouragement from the word and from different authors and from different folks, I thought that's exactly what I needed. And I trust you need today too. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together. And we just thank you for your word. And in these troubled times, Lord, where there's uncertainty financially and I'm just hearing of friends of mine who had to foreclose on their home last night. Thank you that you are a God who has us just right where you would have us. Thank you for the encouragement of your saints, the ability that they can lift us up, remind us of your word, remind us of your love and your control and what you're doing in our lives. And I just pray that we'll be those kind of folks that when we receive as well, we'll be like sponges and wanting to as well give. And just be a soothing uh, balm to those around us. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.